Uh, this morning, our text will be from, once again, we started this series uh, in Jeremiah. We're going to finish this series in Jeremiah again. Not the same text, but in Jeremiah 10, leading up to the verse we started with at the beginning of the series, let's go back to the beginning of that text, Je- uh, Jeremiah 10. We're going to look together at 1 through 16 this morning. So as we stand in reverence of this word as we are, let us hear what it has to say this morning. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the sight of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They, cannot be car- they, they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the works of skilled men. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And His wrath, the earth quakes. At His wrath, the earth quakes. And the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Amen? We can go home right now, right? That's good, isn't it? God's word is good. So let us pray that Kyle doesn't mess up what is already really, really good. Let's pray this morning over God's word. Lord, we come before you now. We love you. We thank you for all that you do and are doing Lord, we thank you this morning at this time of our service. We want to thank you for the word of God. Lord, the word of God, the Bible, Lord God, that does not shift like shadow, that it does not go to the right or to the left because cultural inclinations or indignations does not threat. It's changing. It stands the test of time. It is a living and active word. Lord, thank you that we have something concrete to point to, to know, to believe, to trust, to proclaim. Be in your word, and we ask all of these things of it this morning. Speak to us this morning. Through it, we do desperately pray. We need you. 
to be honored, to be glorified, I do pray this morning. Christ Jesus, we do pray in your name. Amen, amen, amen. You may be seated this morning. Again, we are going to be back in our attribute series, and this serves as the conclusion. Uh, be, be mindful of those who, we have college students who are still gone, people who are still out and about traveling, and we have many, many people who are sick. Uh, one of the reasons why Misty's not here is because we have a sick child at home. So um, there's a lot of that going on uh, uh, this week specifically, but we are grateful that you are here this morning. If you're following online, we love you. We thank you that you're here as well with us this morning. Again, uh, the main, uh, well, I'd say the message introduction this morning is this, that what we started out in the first week of the series, which was the introduction, and now the conclusion, they are, well, they will serve as bookends, as it were, of the series known as the I Am series or the Attribute series. And as I started uh, in, in, in the beginning with an introduction, we we're going to end with the conclusion. I want to tell you something really quickly, just really fast. You're going to hear some interwoven and common themes, all right? It's themes that we started with, and you've heard from day one when we started the series, and hopefully you're going to see those themes interwoven in everything that we've done every single week leading up to today, and guess what? Today, in conclusion, you're going to hear the same themes. So am I beating a dead horse? No, because I believe the horse isn't yet dead, okay? So we're going to kick it a little bit more. Is that okay? And this is the conclusion of this series together. And as I started this series... If you remember, worthwhile relationships, ones that matter, ones that are deep, ones that are robust, are relationships that are based upon knowledge. Relationships based upon knowledge. When we meet someone for the first time, we do not consider that we really know that person until we have actually had the opportunity to learn something about them. Such as their history, his or her history, or their personality, their likes and dislikes. Uh, maybe their desires, their, their hopes for uh, the future. Uh, what, what makes this person click? What makes this person who they are? And as we come to know about a new acquaintance, we better understand how to carry on a relationship with that individual. That makes sense, doesn't it? The more you know about someone, the more you know how not to offend, the more that you know how to encourage better, the way that you know how to respond in kind when they act a certain way. You know something about them. It's, it's history, a vibrant relationship with God, I believe, is in the same form. It must be rooted in a firm understanding of who he reveals himself to be in his word. To have a proper relationship with God means to know him, to know something about him. And here's the thing, for him, ultimately, to know you. The know you part we'll come to see at the end of this morning's sermon. But if you remember, we have studied and began on this course of understanding why is it important for us to know something about God, something of God. Uh, J.I. Packer, and I have the quote up here for you all, J.I. Packer had said this, the highest science, uh, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, it is the nature, it is the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God in whom they call Father. And don't we have a good Father? We began the series with a scriptural case from Jeremiah 9, 23 through 25. 
So this morning we're going to be looking at Jeremiah 10. That's a, that's a, it comes at the back end of what we've already looked at. But if you remember, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 25, we started this series with these words. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We're going to boast on anything. Be careful as Christian men and women specifically not to boast in our own minds, our own strength, our own will. It is to this. God delights in those who boast in knowing him, pursuing relationship with him. Now, before I continue to talk about this relationship and this pursuit, uh, Merry Christmas, right? Some of y'all, are y'all saying it yet? Okay, Merry Christmas. What do we celebrate at Christmas? Emmanuel. God is with us. I'm going to say something really quick, and then I'm going to move on because it's not part of my notes. And if Misty was here, she'd be giving me the scowry eye. I just want to fill you in on something. God, in Christ Jesus, has already come the entire distance to know you, or better yet, to be known. The question that we have before us this morning is this. How are we as believers boasting in, not in a pride sort of way, in the text, how are we boasting in the fact that we know God? Are we getting to know God? He has come the entire distance. What are we doing to pursue a knowledge of him, specifically as believers? So here we are endeavoring to study several attributes in the course of the series. This is a bookend. So let me remind you, we have just taken 11 sermons, 11 weeks of God together over the course of this last several months. And we have focused upon God in his attribute, meaning his character and nature, intrinsically who he is. And we've looked at things like God is holy. Our God is sovereign. Our God is self-sufficient. Our God is wrath and justice. Our God is love. Our God is grace and mercy. Our God is immutable. Our God is truth. Our God is jealous. Our God is faithful. And we learned last week that our God is incomprehensible, yet knowable. The knowable, unknowable. And if you remember, in the introduction and throughout this entirety of the series, understanding and knowing God will help us in three ways. If you want to write these down, I don't have them on my PowerPoint, but if you want to remember these, they're really simple. Why is it important for us to study And to understand God. Why is it a worthwhile endeavor to learn the Bible, to study doctrine and theology? Theology meaning theo and ology, the study of God. Why is it important to study theology? Because once we understand God in his word, number one, it helps us to better know ourselves. You want to come to God rightly? You need to know yourself firstly. And actually, I would say know God firstly to understand yourself rightly. But if we understand and take the endeavor to know God, we better know ourselves. That's important. That's important. Number two, when we understand and learn more about God, we understand the magnitude, listen, of the gospel. God, man, need. God holy, righteous, good, perfect in all his ways. Man, desperately sick. 
an enemy of God because of sin, separated from God, no hope, lost. Jesus Christ, he's come to do something that we cannot do for ourselves. God has done something in Jesus that we could not do for ourselves. Knowing God helps us to better understand ourselves, better understanding our knowing, understanding ourselves and knowing ourselves helps bring about a better understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we study God, we better know ourselves. Number two, we understand the magnitude of the gospel. And three, our worship becomes appropriate. Let me put that a different way. Our response becomes big, 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 big. When I understand who God is, I'll understand who I am. When I understand who I am, I understand what I'm not. When I understand what I'm not, I understand how desperately lost and bankrupt I am. And God says, by the way, I sent my son, Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we understand these three things in order, guess what happens? It's our response to the root truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, the gospel of Jesus Christ never starts with Jesus. And by the way, the gospel of Jesus Christ never starts with you. The gospel of Jesus Christ always starts with who? God. It must start with God. It always must start with God. And in our modern day, what do we do? We try to take the gospel to lost and dying people by going to Jesus first or felt needs. Hey, look, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus loves you. I'm not trying to be coy or funny. I had somebody over at the house the other day. It was Elizabeth. And uh, Elizabeth and, and Robert, and we were trying, we're not trying to be funny, but we're, being, we're kind of laughing at some things, right? When people come up to you and say, hey, Jesus loves you. Now let me tell you, is it the truth? Yes. But it's cheesy. Walk up to a man who's a crack addict underneath the bridge, or whatever, Jesus loves you. Okay, thanks. Everybody's been telling me that. Of course Jesus loves me. What's the extent of that love? The extent of that love is rooted and founded in the fact that Jesus Christ points us to the reality of a father who is good, gracious, holy, and we have no way of making our way to God at all. The love of God comes in the form of Jesus Christ and the gospel. If we don't understand these things, brothers and sisters, we won't fall on our faces before God and worship reverentially enough. We won't understand worship. It'll be like, yeah, Jesus loves us, all of us. You know the depth of that love of you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What, what Christ did in order for you to stand before God and say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not a cheesy little run of the mill, Jesus loves you like my mother loves me. Your mom loves you. Of course, she's my mom. Jesus loves you. Of course, he's Jesus. You see, while we, look, while we will not be looking at those points again this morning, those three things that I just mentioned, why it's so important to understand God, to better know ourselves, to better understand the magnitude of the gospel, better understand our worship, our response, I want us to be aware of these and remember that these are what moves us forward in concluding this series together. We started that with premise. We're going to end with that premise. Now, here's the transition away from my introduction. The transitional statement is this. This morning, I would like to take our attention back into the book of Jeremiah once again. As we endeavor to understand just how important it is for us to study the deep things of God as to better know and understand him. Can we do that? We ready to do that? Okay, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you go with me once again to the book of Jeremiah, uh, guess what? This is one of those mornings where I don't have any points. We are just going to take the text before us and we are going to apply ourselves to understand what is going on here in Jeremiah 10 together as we conclude this series. So if you look with me once again, Jeremiah 10, we're going to look at 1 and 3a of the text. And it says there, 
Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the nations. Stop. Learn not the way of the nations. You see, those out there of the nation of Israel in the day of Jeremiah were doing something different than what God had called Israel to do. God says in the text, do not learn their ways. They have nothing to teach you. Quit looking at them. Quit trying to be at the cool person table for just one second, please. Let's continue. Nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens because the nations, they are dismayed at them for the customs of the peoples are vanity. Their ways, their customs, their thinking is but vanity, God says to the nation of Israel. Like in Jeremiah's day, brothers and sisters, listen, there is a growing custom of the people, meaning those in which live today in churches and in our culture, but I would say even in our churches as well, in droves, where the custom of the people reign more supreme and higher than the custom of God's word. This is to be turned back on every single time. Many who have grown far too, look what it says in the text. It says the custom of the people, and then it goes on to say, have grown far too dismayed. I want you to know in your text this morning what dismayed means in the, in the original. The, the word dismayed here in Jeremiah 10 means appalled. It means horrified. It means unnerved. And what is it that they've grown unnerved by? For us today, the custom of the people, uh, we, God's people, should not grow dismayed at what? The historical, biblical, and traditional Jesus of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, do not grow dismayed as believers. That's an encouragement with all the love I can Do not lose heart, church. Do not grow dismayed, appalled, horrified, or unnerved by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he has written it, as he has defined it, and not as the custom of man may allow it to be or not to be. One thing that God has not left himself up for is for us to define him as we shall. God has not allowed that for anyone. An uneasiness and an unashamedness of the truth of God's word in our modern day of even American Christianity seems to have crept into the camp. Far too often we see people not unashamed of the gospel, but somehow ashamed of the gospel. Apologizing for somehow the word of God when it rubs us the wrong way. A desire to make things pleasant in religion. But brothers and sisters, I don't know about you. This is one of the things I love about this book. I'm going to talk to you about it on personal nature here. How many of you have read this book? All right, good. I, I, let me tell you something about it, okay? When I was a believer, before I was a believer, I read this book, and guess what it did to me? It literally, if it could have a proverbial, if you could just see this from, from where you are sitting, it's like this. God's Word is living and active. It does what no other book can do. It literally, you start to read its pages, and it goes, oh, how many of you have ever been punched in the face by God's Word? Amen. That means you're reading it correctly, all right? Because what a lot of people do is when they come to the places where God's word goes, they go, we don't preach that text. That's not popular. 
Let's stay away from that one. If you're getting punched in the face by God's word, you are reading it correctly. Because let me tell you something else about God's word, okay? Before you get scared and be like, I don't ever want to read that book. I don't want a bloody nose. I like my teeth. God's word is living and active. It does what no other book, and I mean this, no other book on the face of the planet can do. And I've read a lot of religious texts from a lot of different religions. God's word can do this. It can punch you in the face with truth. And at the same time, the other hand of healing comes and it just soothes us in a way that that first punch, it just, it just makes it go away. I can read on this page something that brings my heart utter dismay in the flesh and then I can turn the literal page and I can continue to read and my spirit wells up with joy unspeakable. Amen? What book in the world does what this book can do? It will kill you in one minute and it will make you alive the next. And usually the killing comes in the way of the flesh. The life comes in the way of the spirit. This is a living book. This book can do what no other book can do. God's holiness, God's justice, God's wrath, teaching of sin, and the need for repentance is something that the custom of our people in the day and age in which we live has become utterly dismayed. We have grown, not meaning us or we, I'm just speaking in generalities, we have grown in American Christianity, I'm picking on our own, dismayed, ashamed of the word of God, the gospel, and the glory of Jesus Christ. How can this be? J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors of all time, said this in his book, Holiness. How many of you read Holiness? There's at least two or three people in here who read Holiness, right? Keith, did you finish Holiness? Shame on you. Shame on you, brother. Listen, God's word will punch you and then it will also heal you. So re- keep re- That's why you're reading the Bible too much, right? You have no time for holiness. That's right. Amen. Good answer. In that book, he said this. There is a, wide, a widely spread desire to make things pleasant in religion, to saw off the corners and the edges of the cross, and to avoid as far as possible self-denial. On every side, we hear professing Christians declaring loudly that we must not be narrow and exclusive and that there is no harm in many things which the holiest of saints of old thought bad for their souls. And he goes on to say, heart religion, which means if you see that in old language, it means true religion. Heart religion is too humbling to be popular. Let me say that again. Heart religion, true relationship with Christ, a love of this word Honestly and truthfully, it is too humbling to be popular. It leaves natural man no room to boast. It tells him that he is guilty, lost, and a hell-deserving sinner, and that he must flee to Christ for salvation. It tells him that he is dead and must be born of the Spirit. The pride of man rebels against such tidings as these. He hates to be told that his case is so bad. says there in the, te- in, in, in the text in his quote, it leaves natural man no room to boast. What would we learn from Jeremiah 9? Let he who boasts, boasts in this, that he knows and understands me and I am the God that practices steadfast judgment, righteousness upon the earth. Here's the question. So what have many done? What have many flocked to in the name of, yes, and I'll put my quotations up here. Y'all always make fun of me with my quotations. I think it's appropriate this time. Okay, you ready? What has so many done in the name of Christianity? Naomi, is that correct? Is that correct usage? All right, all right. Today, what have we done? 
Many have sought to strip God of his greatness and how precisely have many gone about doing this? How have we tried to do this today? And it's because uh, one of the ways we've done this massively is by making God look and think just like us. Tame him. Put that God in a box quickly. He will get, if he gets out, it gets really messy quick. Dilute him. Taking away. Oftentimes we add, you know what happens when we add anything? We pollute. Dilute him, pollute him quickly. Do not allow God to be as God is. It gets really messy quick. We make God look and just like us, making a God in our own image. And what does it say there in our text? What does Jeremiah say of such things in his own day? People who are doing this, they grow dismayed over the reality of who God was, even in Israel. They were running off to the ways of the world, the customs of man, and it says that their thinking was, and the word there is, but what? Vanity. Their way was nothing but vanity. And now, if you remember, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes together. I love Ecclesiastes. Did I ever tell you that I love the book of Ecclesiastes? One or more than once? The most depressing book in all the Bible. It's depressing. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, it says life is worthless, it's meaningless. You know, we have whole churches dedicated to helping you find purpose in life. Hey, and then we'll preach through Ecclesiastes. Hey, how many of you, God has a wonderful plan for your life, you know? Hey, open up your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes. Life is meaningless. Hey, God has a wonderful plan for life. God, God wants you to be happy. It's like catching smoke. You can't find it. Happiness, it's, it'll elude you. You see the problem with trying to build a church off of that message? Here's the thing. The book of Ecclesiastes, the book that says, everything in the flesh that this world wants, your desires for the flesh, cannot be found in the flesh. It can't be found on this side of heaven. It can't be found on any of this stuff that will one day burn. But if you know someone by the name of Jesus Christ, if you know Christ truthfully and savingly, it says that all of these things is worthless. And you said, it's always been worthless because I know Christ. For believers, you read Ecclesiastes with eyes that are different. You read it and go, oh yeah, I already figured that one out. I love God all the more. I have tried and tried and tried to find my happiness in things outside of him. And the only thing that I've ever been able to find, joy unspeakable. Joy is different than happiness. Y'all know that, right? Happiness is a good thing. Who likes to be happy? Amen? Some of you like to be happy, okay? I, I like to be happy. Happy's good, right? Well, I'll pray for this, whole, this entire congregation soon, right? Happiness, good. Pursue happiness. How many of you are Americans? What does our document say? The pursuit of happiness. Do it. But happiness can always be stolen from you. No amount of money can bring it. Family members can get cancer and die. That relationship, that thing, Ecclesiastes says, it is vanity. But in Christ Jesus, joy unspeakably can be found in Jesus Christ because nothing on this side of heaven can disturb, destroy, or distort anything that God has already done for us and laid for us in heaven. Amen? We're eternity driven people. We are not of this world. We are pilgrims here today, gone tomorrow, longing for the day that we'll stand before our king and bow before him in all eternity and sing his praises. Amen? How many of you are ready? Me too. Come, 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 come quickly. If you remember from Ecclesiastes, this is what it was all. To be vain is to boast about self, conceited and self-serving. However, the word itself here means, here in the text, Listen, in, in Jeremiah 10, vanity, this, all this stuff is something empty or valueless. 
it means in the original here in the Hebrew, it is hollow, it is shallow, it is without weight, it is worthless. Both are useful understandings here. It's something empty and valueless. It is something without weight. It is worthless. Such is the way of the world. Meaning, when we seek these actions and thoughts out, we prove to be lovers of self rather than God. Worshippers of self rather than worshippers of God. And such worship is empty and without meaning. Such Christianity, my quotations, are empty, worthless, valueless, and vanity. That's the point of the text. Question, how exactly do you mean this, Kyle? What do you mean? Well, Jeremiah provides us a picture, and I love when the Bible gives us pictures. Let me show you from Jeremiah himself the picture he gives us. So if you look back with your text with me in verses 3b, and now we'll go on to 5, and look what it says there. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field stop. I'll read that again. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber patch or field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Did you catch that, church? They are all invented by the hands and thoughts of earthly men. Locked down, it says in our text, in boxes. They do not speak these things that we make in our own fashion and image. They do not move. They do not do evil nor good, meaning they are, listen, lifeless. There is no life found in them. Jeremiah says that such thinking of the world and the pursuits that we have, if we go down that route, are vanity because this is the reason of their vanity. They stop with what is created. They do not go beyond that. They're lifeless, they're mute, they're dumb, they cannot see, they cannot eat. They are, the imagery, like a lifeless scarecrow. I was just sitting there thinking to myself, Can you imagine if we took the cross there and removed it and we put a scarecrow up there this morning? How dumb is that? Hey, let's worship a scarecrow. You see, here's the thing. They are invented by the hands and thoughts of man. And it says, do not be afraid of them in our text. Do not be afraid of them. Now, by the way, let me ask you something real quick. How many of you are actually deathly scared of scarecrows? Anybody here scared of a scarecrow? Nobody? There's whole movies made about scarecrows, right? Don't be fearful of them. They're dumb. They don't move. They do not kill you, okay? You children in the room, I just got to give you some knowledge. Scarecrows kill no one, okay? So if you did not know that, I just told you that. Here's the picture that we have. It, it, It says, do not be afraid of it. But let me tell you what it really means to be afraid. I love this because in the text, the word afraid, it defines what it means for Jeremiah to say, what God himself would have us know. It says, do not be afraid of them. Not running through the cornfield scared for your life. No, no, no. The word afraid here in the text, it says, do not respect them. Do not respect them. Do not revere them. And do not be made to be in awe of them. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it says in Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Scripture states, 
And so here it is, it's saying, do not be afraid of the things that man can create, make in his own image. Do not revere them. Do not be made in all of them. In other words, there is nothing impressive in the least with any of them. I know this fairly well in my own life because of where we've spent a lot of time uh, teaching people about Christ. And even in my uh, early teen years, I've got pictures. So I'll throw up some of those pictures, if you will, of some of those places where I've literally seen people worship things that were created. So in Indonesia, and, 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 and here's the funny thing. I've been in places like South America, Mexico. Mexico was one of those really big places where they had idols continually, even in the cathedrals. Some of these were done in Buddhist temples. Uh, these are in Hindu temples. Confucianism, they have idols that are set up. I remember one day being in Indonesia with Elijah, just he and I on a motorcycle. We went up to, I was just taking him up there. We were just kind of sightseeing, taking pictures. And I remember he was a little tiny guy, uh, probably about the age you see him right there in that T-shirt. And he, Elijah's sitting there, and we're sitting there. And he said really loud one day, we were, we were in Indonesia, and we was in the temple. And Elijah goes, Daddy! I said, yeah. He goes, don't they know that these idols are dead? And I was like, amen, shut up. I can just see his little five-year-old self looking back at me and go, don't be ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> to me, I watched women, specifically in Chinatown there in Singapore, and I saw them with their incense, and they would sit there, and there were just tears in their faces, literally in, in anguish because they just lost a loved one. They're just praying for that, the soul and the spirit of that loved one. I watched them as they literally would take water bottles and they would leave them at the, at the bases of some of these, uh, these shrines. To Look at monkey God over here. So you got, you got these things and we're going, hey, look, I'm giving you water. They brought to them food. Every time you go to the temple, you'd always see laid out uh, uh, incense burning. They would water bottles. They'd be food. People would literally bring food to feed things made by man. At the end of the night, the priest would come and they'd eat the food. And the next morning, everybody's like, oh, the idols eat. I know that I know just Elijah probably didn't have the comprehension of what's going on during that time frame, but I can literally tell you that there was something that came over me in my soul and still does that literally people are in blind and in darkness. They are reverentially in awe. They fear. They fear as in revere, and they made to awe of things that were made by man. That literally, in order for a, a dead idol to eat, the priest has to eat the food the night before the next morning. How sick is this? No, no, no. How sad is this picture? All of this is Ecclesiastes. All of this is but vanity, vanity, vanity. It is meaningless. It is like the nation of Israel worshiping to a lifeless scarecrow. And that is what we have. What would the scene be if tomorrow many went to worship a scarecrow on a farm? That is the scene in the imagery of Jeremiah here. He is setting us before the people of Israel for us today. How much of our worship is more akin to worshiping a scarecrow in a, on a farm somewhere than it actually is coming into the presence of Almighty God from his word? And I'm talking about us Christians. Not to be formed by our own opinion, our own culture, our own inclinations, our own sensibilities, our own comforts. No, no, brothers and sisters. It is made and formed in fashion in eternity past, spelled out to us and given to us in his word, led by the power of his spirit. He will not yield his glory to no other. Verse 10, excuse me, chapter 10, 8 through 9. Look with me what it says next. 
if you hadn't already got where I was going with this, but Jeremiah, they are both stupid and foolish. Okay? I didn't use that word. If someone says, hey, my son, we don't say stupid from our house. I didn't, I just, I'm reading Bible. Okay? They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, gold from Aphas. They are the work of the craftsmen and in the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. The question is, are they the work of God? In other words, wow, listen, how awe-inspiring. Oh, wow. People say, what a great church, possibly. I, think the, I see this in the area of, uh, of idol worship in other foreign lands, in other foreign places. That's easy when you see that. Brothers and sisters, what's subtle and what's hard to understand is in our own culture when we don't have wood and images made by man. But we've already said this. I told you there was a theme throughout the entirety of the series where we begin to make God to look more like us than he does in his word. That, too, is idolatry. A four, and it's, 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 it's maybe even more sinister because that's simple. That's sad. What is harder still is when we have the malaise of Christianity, throw in a couple Bible verses, sing a couple songs, give, and watch what happens. But our view of God is still too small. How are we allowing God to be God even in the midst of all that, too? That's more subtle. It's more difficult because you go, look, it has a veneer of Christianity. Be careful. Listen to me. And I mean this. Be careful, American Christian. You may be more at risk of idol worship than anybody who bows down to an idol made with human hands. That's easy. What I'm talking about is hard. That's why we must have our face in this word and so much more as we will look. The question that I have is not what people say when they say about our church or other churches. What a great pastor. What a great church. What a great facility. What a great program. What a great vibe. What we want and desire more than anything else as Christian men and women ought to be. Not a great any of that, but what a great Savior. Amen? The awe needs to be back on Christ and Him alone. It is all for God and His glory. Remember, most people have not rejected God. You remember me saying this throughout the course of this series. Many people have not rejected God. They have simply reduced him. And in reducing him, we have reduced the magnitude and greatness, I'd say the power of the message of the gospel as well. Again, no reason why people are bored and unmoved today. There should not be any reason. I think that if we are bored and if we are unmoved, we have far too long been looking at an inferior version and view of God. Can I say that? And I don't mean to... I look at, let me say, calm down. Y'all are going to take my passion as me being mad, and I'm not. I, 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 listen, I, I'm guilty of this too. Can I say that? How, how many of y'all know, how many of y'all looked up here, I'm made of something called the flesh. I, I, listen, I am they. I'm made of the same material you're made out of. We grow too comfortable with inferior views of God. As C.S. Lewis once said, we were made to sit at the table of the king and yet we, were, we, we settle for the scraps at the master's table. You were made, I was made, we were all made for greater things than these. Again, there is no reason why people are bored and unmoved. Our God are simply, maybe possibly, just far too small. And what does the prophet say of such people? Gods and, and worship, it says that all of that is but vanity. Jeremiah 10, look at me in 14 and 16. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. 
Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. And by the way, how many of us are goldsmiths of our God in our own right, in our own minds? We form and fashion with our own minds, our own inclinations, our own comforts, our own sensibilities, God who is not to be worshipped because it's not the God of the Bible. We're all guilty of this. We've got to be careful of this. This is a loving encouragement to say, stay away from it. For his image is false, it goes on to say. For his images are false. And there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The work here, the word delusion, it means here in, uh, uh, four, excuse me, in 14, says something that is falsely or delusively believed or propagated. It's a delusion. It's, it's, it's a figment. Uh, brothers and sisters, listen to me before we go on. This is why discernment is so important today. And as I'm watching Christianity into the 21st century, I'm seeing less and less uh, desire for God's word and to know him intimately. That's why, in order to have discernment, we need to be in God's word continually. We need to be dependent upon God in his spirit. That's why I point to prayer. Prayer, we're desperately depending on God to move. We're asking him to do something in his spirit upon us. We need God's word. We need his spirit. Dependence upon it. And number three, we need each other. And I am so sorry if that offends anyone this morning. I am so sorry. I did not write this. And by the way, I'm actually proud to say it because it is where truth has been found for me in my own life. It is the way in which Christian growth happens. It's the way I stay away from idols that I've made in my own heart. Brothers and sisters, I'm talking about me, not you. God has given us three things. He's given us his word, he's given us his spirit, dependence upon it, and he's given us each other. You take away any one of those, and brothers and sisters, you are a fool and you will grow stupid. I didn't say it, he did. Please don't get mad at me. Please. Be mad at God. Seriously. You can go a lot farther with that one than me. I'm just a dude who's stupid and foolish, by the way. Did you know that? I'm a stupid and foolish dude. God's word is not stupid and foolish. His spirit is not stupid and foolish. And by the way, I don't know why he's decided to do this. He has made the corporate whole of the people who are committed to those things not stupid or foolish. Oh yeah, we're all stupid and foolish. God loves the church. If we separate ourselves from his word, his spirit, and each other, we become fools. Remember this, this visual of worship, apart from this, is all but worshiping a scarecrow. Now, look, look us further, and we'll see a comparison with reality here in our text. These are the warnings. Here's a comparison with reality. Jeremiah 10, 10 through 13. Look what it says. But the Lord, now there's a lot of cool little statements getting ready to come and flying at you off the page of Scripture. Here it is, ready? But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and under the heavens. Verse 12, it is he who made the earth by his power, who establishes the word by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Verse 13, rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Amen? God is doing a whole lot of stuff there that you and I are not involved with. One of the things I really love in this text is there in verse 11 where it says, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. 
Those pictures of the gods of other lands and the scarecrow in the, in the patch, if we are so to, that's the picture that we have of uh, being careful of that, even in Christianity. The gods, small g in your text, if you notice, who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish uh, from the earth, meaning here and from under the heavens. In other words, everything that we fashion by our hands, in our minds, and in our hearts will one day bow a knee to the supremacy of Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen? Every tongue will confess, every knee shall bow that Christ is Lord. And who is he? We heard a lot of he in our text. Who is he? He is Yahweh. Unlike the images and idols of wood, stone, and metal, and in our own day concepts and beliefs that more resemble ourselves in our own image, he is alive, brothers and sisters. He is actual. He is reality. He is truth. He is real. He is active. He moves. He speaks. Our God, he is powerful. Listen, there is none greater than our God. Not because he is merely a greater version of ourselves, but because he is nothing like ourselves. Amen? Let me, let me say that again, and let's see if we can amen that statement. That's a really good statement. Okay, there is none greater than our God, nor because not because He is merely a greater version of ourselves, but because He is nothing like ourselves. That's great. American culture has a hard time amening that. He is bigger to behold and worthy of all praise altogether. God is lovely. In the book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, I always talk to you about the scene with Lucy at the very end with Thumbness, but before that. There's another scene, and, and, and it's when Beaver, I mean, remember the story, the, the, little, the, the little fluffy guy with the big flat tail with buck teeth, you remember Beaver in the story? Some of you are like, I never read the book, I just watched the movie. How many of you read the movie? That was a trick, that was a trick. How many of you read the book? How many of you watched the movie? How many of you watched the movie without reading the book? Own it, own it, own it. You guys are cowards. In the book. Beaver looks out and he sees Aslan and he says this, I quote, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Did you get that? Did you get that? Just indulge me for one second. Did you get that? A man. Now that's one thing. But a lion? See, a lion is too unpredictable. In his nature is might and power, which no man can withstand. Now that is something you do not want to be left in a room with. And you know what? Little Susan is right. She said in the book, a man I can handle, but a lion? You don't want to be left in a room with that. She said, safe? Safe? Is he safe? Safe? Question mark, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he is not safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Be careful that you do not make God to look and fashion in the form of man, maybe even yourself or your uncle Vinny down the street. Brothers and sisters, that is a God in whom you might be able to walk up with and hang out with and drink a cup of coffee with and it makes you feel good at night. But brothers and sisters, that's not the God of the Bible. God of the Bible, let me just put it in context. He is the perfect sacrifice, the 
the spotless lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world, amen? But do not forget, and don't you ever forget this, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and one day he will return to receive his bride, and he's not coming back with a feather duster and some tickles. And one day he will judge the universe in his righteousness, and it says, oh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, amen? Jesus Christ, he does love you, but he does not love you with a pushover love. It's an actualization love. He does something in order for that relationship to be restored. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our God is a lion. Sure, like Susan, maybe it would be more comfortable for God to be a man like us, but he is a lion. Beaver had it right. He is a lion, I tell you. God is something to fear, something to fear. He is something to be respected. He is something to be taken seriously. He is no pushover. He is not weak and timid. He is due your respect, your reverence, and all of our allegiances, church. He is not a, scare, he is not a scarecrow in a cucumber patch. Amen, amen, and amen. Jeremiah 10, 6-7, we'll read in our closing. Jeremiah says, There is none like you. O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might, and you... Who would not fear you? Listen, verse seven. Who, who, who would not fear you? As I read the text, I don't, it's not, who would not fear? Who would not fear you? Awe, inspiring worship, humbleness of heart, reverentially so, fear. Who would not fear you, O God? O King of the nations, for this is your, listen, 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 this is your due. Let me say something about due. When you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, did you earn it? No. It is something known as a, starts with a G and ends with ift, and we do a lot at Christmas. You got it, gift? It's a gift to be received. If we went up to God in our sinfulness and said, God, you owe us. I'm, I'm here to receive what's mine. Maybe mine in Christianity. Maybe mine in religion. A lot of people like to talk about their goodness. Even our best, it says in Isaiah 64, 6, even our best is but poor wretched rags. So if we came up to God and said, God, here it is. I want my paycheck. God says, okay, you have earned something. Let me get my checkbook out. Wrath, punishment, judgment, damnation. You want what's owed you? I will give you what's owed you. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. None of us in this room, want, does not, we do not want what's owed us. Here in the text, there's something that is said in Jeremiah. It says, who would not fear you? Who would not reverentially in awe fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your what? Do. God has earned the right. God has earned something. And all that God has ever earned from any of us is our love, our adoration, our respect. Do you see this, church? This is what God is owed. This is his payment. For among all the wise, it says, I continue to take up in Jeremiah, for among all the wise ones of the nations in all their kingdoms, there is none like you, O God. Amen? This is his due. But listen, and yet God, like the lion and lion which in the wardrobe, it says that he is good. 
Every attribute of God feeds our understanding of all the other attributes. Here I am getting close to my conclusion. Everything that we've studied up to this point has been us trying to understand God more rightly. And if you remember, I said throughout this series that once you understand one attribute of God, it helps define all the other attributes of God. You want to understand God's holiness, or excuse me, his love? You want to really understand God's love? You must understand his righteousness. You want to understand God's grace and mercy? You need to study his holiness and his wrath. You want, to understand so many, you want to understand so many things about God, then study God. Because when you study God, you'll learn a lot more about who God is. What are we taking with us when we come to understand God? I pray to God that we are taking with us the attributes that we have studied. And brothers and sisters, we have scratched the surface as a church over the last couple, uh, about 11 to 12 weeks. His holiness, his wrath, and justice equals, it helps us to understand his love, grace, and mercy. Without the others, holiness, wrath, and justice, without the others... Hateful, heavy, and heartless. If we don't study God's love, grace, and mercy, and all we do is study God's wrath, justice, and holiness, you know what that will lead you to? Legalism. It will lead you to something that does not look like the gospel at all. It is God does not allow himself to be picked and chose from us what we like and what we don't like. We have to take all the bits, Amen. We have to take it all, because if we don't take it all, we give a misrepresentation of Jesus Christ and the gospel, and we're doing it all the time in American Christianity. Stop mutilating God. Stop mutilating his word. Stop mutilating the gospel of Jesus Christ and his glory. Give it all to him. Because if all you teach is love and grace and mercy, and you don't teach uh, holiness, righteousness, and judgment, guess what you also get? You get a kumbaya Jesus who sits around a campfire and says, We are in this thing, kumbaya, Lord. Don't worry. Don't worry about sin. Don't worry about judgment. Don't worry about God. You're all good. Jesus loves you. You want to stay away from the extremes? You want to stay away from misrepresenting God? Know him. In all his ways and all his attributes. Because the one thing we know, and I'm telling you something, a little critter by the, by, by the name of Beaver said it. He is a lion, but he is good. And the one thing you can know about God and all his attributes and all his ways, he is pure, he is good. Even in his judgment, he is good. God is good. However, do many others in our churches understand this? Are they getting as much this Sunday morning? Are they merely worshiping a God in their own, their own and on other people's, or the pastor's images maybe? I don't know. A cheapened God due to their being too far dismayed, as it says, do not be dismayed by the reality of the real. Men and women meeting together this morning as if they were in a cucumber patch, bowing down to a poor, frail, and lifeless scarecrow. May it never be said of American Christianity, right? May it never be said of us. Here's the conclusion. Remember, God and Jesus says, I am who I am. He does not say, I am who you want me to be. I didn't see that anywhere in the Bible. He says, I am who I am. He does not say, I am who you want me to be. And if you remember from our introduction this morning, understand this. Understanding and knowing God will help, uh, hopefully lead us to three things as I conclude. Number one, it helps us to know ourselves. Number two, it helps us to understand the magnitude of the gospel. Number three, it helps us worship, respond appropriately in worship and in ministry, for God's glory in that gospel. My hope for you this, in this study uh, has been this, that you have grown more in understanding of who God is. But my, my, my truthful 
desire for every one of you is this. One second, something popped in my head. So, um, Missy's not here, so I can't get in trouble. Until I get home, because she's probably watching online. She says, I saw what you did. I saw what you did. Okay. I'll say this, and then I'll just read one passage of scripture, and I'm going to call the worship team to come up. My prayer, truthfully, as I calm down, because I'm just so passionate, I love this. Church, listen to me. We're done today in the attributes of God, at least this focused series. Listen. And I just pray to God that in every other aspect that you study his word, that you grow more in awe, not dismayed, more in awe of every other aspect of who God is. So that whenever we open the book of the Bible together every Sunday morning at this church, we see him in his fullness, not chopped up, not diluted or polluted, but as he is. And that's why you must pray for people like me because I'm a man who has lips of the flesh. And that's why when you come to a place, find a church that so closely aligns with God's word more than anything else because if you don't, you can get the diluted, the polluted. Uh, you can get oftentimes my opinions. What? Forget my opinions. Forget my opinions. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. My opinions are but vanity. God's word stands the test of time, amen? It has and it continually will. And this is good news. This is good news. I pray to God that we never become Isaiah 1. I've read this before, but I'll read it one more time. In the spirit of the prophets here. Verse 10. God is speaking to his people, Israel. And I can't help but look at this and go, God, I pray that we were never, we, that we as the church in America right now, this present time, does not fall into this. Listen, Isaiah 1 verse 10, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He called Israel Sodom, brothers and sisters. Give ear to the teachings of your God, of, of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He called Israel Sodom and what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. God says, I see your worship services. I'm getting tired of them. But God, we do this, we worship. I'm tired of this. Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you? Listen, this trampling of my courts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts. Listen to what it says in verse 14. Not my words. The words of Scripture says, my soul hates. You know what we find that God hates here in Isaiah 1? Their worship services. God says, I hate your worship. Oh, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you may make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. 
a correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the case at the cause of the widow. Come now, listen. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. I love it. Brandon, do you like that? Do you like that, Brandon? Come let us reason together. Do you like that? Yes, you do. Our faith is not a check your brain at the door sort of faith, amen? It says come heart, soul, and mind to the the place of God and it will be fed. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, amen. Though they are like crimson, they will become like wool, amen. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be uh, eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All I'm trying to say really quickly in uh, as they want, and music team, if you want to come on up, you can. I don't know about you, church, but I don't want to be an Isaiah 1 church. Thank you, Keith. You don't either. So I'll, I'll meet me out in the parking lot. Me and you will be, we'll talk about this. We don't want to be an Isaiah 1 church. You don't want to be an Isaiah 1 church. Brothers and sisters, we have endeavored in the past 11 to 12 weeks to study some attributes and aspects of who God is. I pray that this would feed us, 